Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time to let it roll. The podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. This week, Nate is joined by author Elijah Wall for a discussion of his book, Escaping the Delta, Robert Johnson and the Invention of the Blues. In this episode, Elijah explains his groundbreaking revisionist history of the blues, why Robert Johnson was virtually ignored by blues fans of his own era, and how he emerged as a legend in the 1960s and beyond. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome back to the Let It Roll podcast. This is your host, Nate Wilcox, and I'm very excited to have author Elijah Wald as our guest. We're going to be talking about his book, Escaping the Delta, Robert Johnson and the Invention of the Blues, which for me was a complete mind exploder. Elijah, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Cool. And so reading the book, in the middle of the book, you describe an experience you had when you were teaching, a, I believe, a college course on music, uh, blues music. And you, and you were taking the students through the history of Delta blues, going through Charlie Patton. Skip James, et cetera, et cetera. And when you get to Robert Johnson, who is the only performer that most of these students had heard of before, they were underwhelmed. And you described this as a complete mind, you know, that, that you were very surprised by this and it completely changed your approach. Can you, can you talk about that experience a little bit? Sure. Um, I mean, part, part of what was startling was that I agreed with them. Um, you know, what happened was I had always heard you know, we, we come to a lot of music backwards. That's, in fact, how we write history. We, we start with the present and we go backwards. And so I had heard Charlie Patton and Skip James and these people after hearing Robert Johnson. But if you went slowly to Robert Johnson after hearing those people, you heard, OK, so that, you know, he's sounding sort of like Skip James there. He's sort of sounding like Charlie Patton, but it's not that different. And that was exactly the reaction people had at the time. I mean, and, and that was what was, for me, the game changer, was realizing this is why Robert Johnson was not a big deal in his own day, because the people hearing him had grown up around all of this stuff. And he, he did it well, but, I mean, he was not something 
completely wild and different in terms of Delta Blues. And yet you, you come around to the end where you, even after this experience, you still think that he is one of the greatest, if not the greatest artist to have come out of that time and place. Well, yes, because what I just said, I ended that sentence with in terms of Delta Blues. The thing that was exciting for people of Robert Johnson's generation, and he's a generation after people like Charlie Patton and Sunhouse, is he's the generation of Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf. And he was growing, he grew up already, not just hearing the people in his world, but hearing all the latest sounds coming in on records. And he could play all that stuff. So unlike the older guys in the Delta, he could sound like Leroy Carr, he could sound like Lonnie Johnson, he could sound like P.D. Wheatstraw, who were the biggest stars in St. Louis and Indianapolis and Chicago. He was the hip young sound, and yet he also had that grit of the Delta Blues people, and he was putting those two things together, very much like what Muddy Waters did later. And so it, it is very much, he's, he's that transitional artist. He's the guy who has completely mastered the old style and is looking toward the future. And, and like I would say that the, the thesis statement of this book is that your sentence, Robert Johnson has become the ultimate blues legend. And it's easy to forget that he was just that he was once just a man who sang beautifully and played expert guitar. And that to me, I mean, that demystified Robert Johnson so much. Your, the book in whole. Do you feel like you've succeeded in that? Like, I mean, with the you've had about a decade to get decade and a half to get feedback on this. Do you feel that people have been willing to sort of cast off the mythology that began with John Hammond and the Rolling Stones and other people around Robert Johnson? Or do you feel like uh, people are still clinging to that? Well, I think the first important thing to say is within the world of people who were really into Delta blues and old time country blues, nothing I was saying was new. My book was really a way of taking what a lot of people had been saying for a long time within that small world and trying to reach out to all the rock fans who just knew this world through Robert Johnson and say, actually, it's more complicated than that. So, you know, it wasn't like I had invented a new idea for that world. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly have had an effect. Um, that doesn't mean everyone agrees with me. And that doesn't mean anyone, everyone, certainly it doesn't mean everyone has ever heard of me. And, you know, I think for most people, Robert Johnson is still the name they know. Um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I now regularly run into people saying, of course, Robert Johnson didn't invent all of this. So, you know, just throwing in a sentence that I think, yeah, OK, I, I probably had something to do with that. And and it's it's a worthwhile uh accomplishment i believe i mean for me personally having grown up with that myth um all my life it was it was a complete mind changer and it also made me take a look at people like lonnie johnson Leroy carr and also the blues queens you know bessie smith ma rainey and describe a little bit about the role those people played in the world robert johnson was actually in well those were the superstars <laughs> i mean those were absolutely the superstars there was nobody in his world who had access to records who did not 
think of people like Lonnie Johnson or Bessie Smith as simply being in a different class. I mean, they were, you know, they were Beyonce. They were Jay-Z. They were, they were the superstars. He was the local guy who played well. And the interesting thing to me when I went on teaching college classes is if you're teaching a class of, of kids who don't, who this isn't their thing, they're kids who, you know, if they go home, they listen to Beyonce. Um, both boys and girls tend to be more excited by Bessie Smith than by Country Blues, um, which surprised me. I'm still more excited by Country Blues, but that's my thing. Mainstream pop people still like the people who became mainstream stars back then more than they like the country stuff. Um, and that was the world Robert Johnson grew up in. I mean, Bessie Smith, invent Bessie Smith, Ma Rainey, people like that. What we mean when we say blues is that. And what we mean when we say country blues is guys like Charlie Patton and Sunhouse and so forth, trying to sound like the women they heard on records. And one thing you, you talk about also is that Amongst the country blues performers, it wasn't Charlie Patton that was the big superstar. It was Blind Lemon Jefferson. And why do you think he's been overshadowed by the Delta players? Um, I think that the main reason is that people come to blues via the Rolling Stones and rock and roll and the White Stripes and then electric blues. And then they get back to country blues and they're expecting that sort of powerful rhythm. And Lemon Jefferson was a very quirky guitar player. He doesn't have a driving beat. Um, he's a really exciting singer. And I think, you know, if you laid Lemon Jefferson's voice over a strong rhythm track, it would be easier for people to get it. But, you know, Charlie Patton is playing this ferocious rhythm, and so is Sunhouse, and so is Robert Johnson. Lemon Jefferson is rhythmically all over the map. And so people aren't expecting that. And I think something I need to say about all of this is there's a really strong racial component to what I'm talking about. Because one of the points I was trying to make in that book is um, this is not a value judgment at all. And a lot of people acted like it was and got offended. But one of the points I tried to make is what what white people like about blues in 2018 obviously is different than what black people in the Mississippi Delta liked about blues in 1936. That shouldn't be an offensive, weird remark. That's just obvious. And when we go to Delta Blues, we're looking for something that's strange and different and foreign and wild and exciting for us. And that's not necessarily what people were looking for back then. Maybe they were looking for something that was funny or just music to dance to or just music to make out to or all the things teenagers go to pop music for today. And that, and that uh, again, was another, you know, one of these paradigm shifts that this book was full of for me, where once you put yourself in the position of a blues player or a blues fan in the Mississippi Delta who saw Robert Johnson playing these these small parties, you know, where you'd have one, maybe two guitarists and a, and a house party, you know, they'd roll the rugs back, push the furniture aside and dance all night. It really is easier to see 
what you're talking about. You know, it's this could not be exoticism to these people because this was their friends and neighbors. This was who they knew and what they saw every day. Um, it's it's stranger than that. It the exact because Robert Johnson in a way was exoticism, but what was exotic for them about Robert Johnson was that he had traveled to places like Chicago and New York and sounded like the people on the records. It was exactly the opposite of what's exciting about him to us, which is that he sounds like he's from the dark, mysterious Delta. Exactly. And and the, and I think the photograph of Robert Johnson that only emerged in, what, 1990 was the first sort of really dramatic. I mean, a picture's worth a thousand words. And compared to the drawings we'd had and the imagination we'd have of, you know, uh, the young black man at the crossroads uh, versus what the, what we actually see, which is this handsome, sharp-dressed, you know, sophisticated person. And I wonder, uh, you know, the... the, the Robert Johnson's big break into into white intellectual music culture was John Hammond's spiritual to spring spirituals to swing concert, where Hammond wanted to have Johnson as the blues performer, but Johnson passed away, so he got Bill Big Bill Brunsey, but he still played some of Robert Johnson's records, which nobody he didn't play any other records at that concert. And I mean, what what do you think it was about? Two questions here. One, what do you think it was about Johnson that excited Hammond so much? And do you think it was just that he had not heard Charlie Patton and Sunhouse at all? And the other one is Big Bill Brunsey, who you really explain was an urban, sophisticated professional musician who'd been recording in Chicago for a number of years. He changed his whole act and took off his suits and put on work clothes to sort of satisfy what Hammond wanted to present. Do you think Robert Johnson would have gone along with that? Um, okay, that's a difficult question. I have my guess is Robert Johnson might have gone along with it very briefly, but would not have stuck with it the way Brunsey did because he was 20 years younger. Um, I think a better analog for Robert Johnson would have been someone like Josh White, and Josh White also was playing for that same audience in New York. But he had figured out rather quickly that that white audience was interested in hearing the real old black cotton field music for about five minutes. And then they to hear a mix of stuff. So Josh White presented himself as somebody absolutely genuinely who was from that world and could give them the real taste of that and then could turn around and sing something like one meatball or sing an English ballad or sing a current pop song and then could sing another of those real old blues he grew up with so that you were getting the feeling that you were seeing the real thing, but you were also getting a mixed, interesting, sexy concert by a handsome young guy. And, you know, maybe uh, Robert Johnson could have pulled that off if he'd gone to New York. Brownie McGee pulled off a version of that, too. They were the younger guys. They were the guys of Johnson's generation. Um Maybe he couldn't have, and he would have gone back to Mississippi. Maybe he would have formed an electric band, and rather than going for that audience, tried to sound like T-Bone Walker. We don't know. 
Yeah, it's fascinating. And that's one thing, you know, we tend to think of Robert Johnson as one of these American masters on a, on a par with Louis Armstrong or Hank Williams or Louis Jordan, somebody who defined a genre. And it's clear that while he might be the best representative of that genre, he was very young and unformed after, you know, reading your book. It's like, and that had never occurred to me that this was basically an apprentice still finding his way. It's like we only had the first Beatles album or something. Um, yeah, it is a little bit like that. Maybe even the second Beatles album. Um, you know, like they're already writing their stuff, but they still, you know, and they're exciting. They still sound like a lot of other stuff. Um, the other thing with Robert Johnson is when I say what's exciting about him, um, he's arriving very late. I mean, everybody he sounds like pretty much had recorded at least five sometimes close to 10 years earlier. And what's incredibly lucky is that we have him at all. By 1936, what most people were listening to if they were listening to blues was the Count Basie Orchestra. They were not listening to guitar players from Mississippi anymore and wouldn't for another 20 years until that sound got electrified by people like Muddy Waters, who was of Robert Johnson's generation. So, I mean, we're lucky to have that. Absolutely. And and you talk about the, and, and we've talked on the show with Ed Ward many times about the collapse of record sales at the beginning of the Depression. And and you explain how by the late 30s, they had found that there was still money to be made and much smaller print runs of niche artists like Delta Blues artists. And they were taking a second run at that. Well, that's an interesting thing. We're talking now about the Depression. And... People talk as if people didn't have any money for records anymore, but something much more important had happened. Um, two, act, two things, actually. One of them was radio. Um, I mean, if you had a radio, it didn't cost significantly more than a phonograph. And once you bought the object, the music was free. Um, it also sounded better. And you could just turn it on. And it would play you music all day long, whereas a record player, you had to change the record every three minutes. So essentially, once you have the radio in your home, nobody wants records anymore. However, out in the Mississippi Delta, you have all these people living out where there's no electricity. So they don't have radios. They do still have wind up phonographs. So there's still a market way out in the country for records. And then the thing you have by 1936-37 is you have jukeboxes. And this is, not, this is something I didn't yet know when I was writing Escaping the Delta. I didn't learn that till I was writing my next book, How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll. That when you talk about record sales in the mid to late 1930s, anything from so, roughly around half of all the records sold in the United States were going into jukeboxes, not into people's homes where they were listening on, on their home record players. So basically what they're cutting people like Robert Johnson for is for the few folks out in the country who might still want that old stuff and to put on the jukeboxes. I see. And that, then that explains a lot. And, and, you know, another thing that you talk about is is Terraplane Blues was his the closest he ever got to a hit. 
And that is hardly the song that it's probably not in the top 10 songs that Robert Johnson fans think of now. I mean, you think of Crossroads, you think of Love in Vain, the songs that were covered by the Stones and Eric Clapton and Cream and people like that. What was it about Terraplane Blues that clicked and those other songs didn't? Good question. It was that it was funny. It's a it's a it's a dirty, naughty, funny song. And that's one of the things about blues that the black blues audience was going to, you know, it's like it, it, there's a very similar thing that happened with rap. I mean, if you listen to the first N.W.A. album, it's either a comedy album or it just is a bunch of guys yelling aggressively. <laughs> I mean, you either think it's funny or you don't get it. I mean, I guess that there were some, again, some white fans who thought, oh, my God, it's the dangerous sound of the gangbangers and drug traffickers. That's so cool. But I mean, honestly, you listen to that album. It's no surprise that Ice Cube went on to start writing comedy movies. Those are, he's, he was a comedy writer from the beginning. And a huge part of blues was always that. But when it got in the hands of people like the Rolling Stones and Eric Clapton, they were white English kids from 5,000 miles away, and they didn't get the jokes. So they did this stuff as dark and scary. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, another thing is always this, this whiff of devil worship around Johnson, which was a huge part of the way he was introduced to the Stones and, and books uh, written in the late fifties and the, you know, Brian Jones and others were reading in the early sixties. And yet you pretty clearly show that this was something that was done pretty commonly and mostly tongue in cheek. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he did it the same way the stones did it. I mean, you know, it, it was, it was cool. That's the thing. It, it wasn't, I mean, I'm not saying nobody in the Delta believed you could sell your soul to the devil. I'm not saying nobody in the Delta was superstitious. Sure, there were some people who were superstitious and believed that stuff. And there were lots of people who just thought it was funny. And there were lots of people who thought it was stupid. I mean, there's this great film documentary called, uh, it, well, there's a film called The Search for Robert Johnson. And there's stuff in it I like and stuff I don't like, but there's a wonderful moment where Johnny shines who was Robert Johnson's traveling partner, musical partner and friend. And John Hammond, the son of the one who, who did the spirituals to swing concert, asks him if he thinks Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil. And he says, and, and, and uh, sorry, uh, uh, shines, Johnny shines, yeah, reaches out his hand and he says, give me your soul. And, and, Hammond says, what? He says, come on, take your soul out of your body. Hand it to me. <laughs> and Hammond says, okay. he said, and Sean says, yeah, right. You can't do that. I, you know, he's saying that you can't, do, you know, this is, this isn't, these are stories. And of course there were people who believed them, but you know, a lot of people, Robert Johnson's age, they, you know, they thought of that as the, the stuff the old people believed. Yeah. And, and another performer you talk about a lot, that's, very ignored, and, and it's easy to see why if you try to plow through his work, is Petey Wheatstraw, who was very popular, but his, I didn't know that his entire name 
was a play on the satanic imagery. Sure, Petey Wheatstraw, the devil's son-in-law. Yeah, and that was already, I, I think that was already a folk character. It's actually, there's no proof. Petey Wheatstraw, the devil's son-in-law, became a famous folk character, whether he was whether the folk legend was named after the singer or vice versa, I think it's pretty clear that the folk legend was around first, but it isn't a hundred percent. But yeah, if you listen to him, he's an incredible singer and Robert Johnson clearly is trying to sound like him and is imitating a lot of his vocal style. But if you listen to song after song after song, if you get a CD of PD Wheatstraw, it sounds boring, but nobody did. All they had was single records or records on a jukebox. You know, it's like if you listen to an album of Little Richard's hits back to back, they all sound the same. But if you listen to one of them, it blows you away. Yeah, and that's something that um, uh, talking to Edward about his history of rock and roll and listening to these things, listening to box sets uh, like the Bear Family's uh, Light and the Fuse R&B set. When you hear a performer like Charles Brown, who was this immensely popular blues singer from the 50s, you listen to a CD of it, and it's just blues song after blues, slow blues after slow blues after slow blues, and you get really burned out. But if you listen to it in a mix alongside things that were in the jukebox or on the radio, it really has a lot of power. And, and I've, I've put some Petey Wheatstraw into some mixes I've made of music from his era, and it's it's much easier to see why he was so popular. But what I mean, do you think it was just his singing style? What was it that made Petey Wheatstraw a star and Robert Johnson a you know minor figure um partly uh that it, he was coming out of the city he had a piano behind him i mean you already that was already piano time nobody wanted solo guitarists anymore and uh, you know partly just because of the way it sounds on a jukebox i mean there's just the the piano is a, a more percussive instrument and it jumps off a jukebox wheatstraw was a great singer um the records were well made. They were much better distributed. He was in, based in St. Louis. He had lots of advantages. One thing about Charles Brown, who you just mentioned, if you saw Charles Brown live, Charles Brown played Duke Ellington. Charles Brown played anything. Charles Brown never would have sat down at a piano and played an evening of blues. Charles Brown made a bunch of blues records in the 40s and 50s because that happened to be what was selling for him. But he was an artist like Nat King Cole. He could do anything. And he just got typed on record as doing that one thing. And, and that happened to a lot of people. Including Robert Johnson. I mean, that they're, yes. they're pushing him to try to make Terraplane Blues too, I would assume. Although it seems yes. sort of like, from your description of his sessions, that there wasn't really a hand on the wheel. Like, you, you read about A&R men at this point in time, and there are definitely instances where the A&R man was more active. It seemed like Robert Johnson kind of had a free hand, at least if, once he had done his first couple of cuts, he could go back into his catalog and, and play around a little bit. Well, tell us about that a little bit. Um, well, I wouldn't say he had a free hand. He had what people wanted from someone like Robert Johnson was original blues songs. So if he had simply wanted to sing Leroy Carr's How Long, How Long Blues, they would have said, now nah, nah, we already, you know, there are already a dozen records of that song. Give us something else. 
And if he'd wanted to sing a hillbilly song, they would have said, now we have lots of other people who do that fine. And if he'd wanted to sing a Bing Crosby hit, and he did all of these styles of music, I'm not making this up, um, they would have said, hey, we've got Bing Crosby. We don't need a black guitarist from Mississippi to do that. So he was being tightly channeled into specifically playing blues, and they wanted original songs because the same guy who was recording him was also copywriting the songs and collecting publishing royalties. So within those limitations, he had a free hand. And, and that brings up one thing. Another thing that was, was a concept I hadn't thought through before was this concept of the human jukebox. It's somebody like Robert Johnson with, who had the ability to hear a song on the radio and immediately play it back, including new chords he'd never heard before, what, what what was his day to day? I mean, you know, talk about the repertoire that he would have had to have had in live settings. Um, it would depend on the live setting. And that's, you know, he was known in his world for being really, really versatile. That, you know, if he was playing on the street in Clarksdale and a white farmer came past, he could do the latest Jimmy Rogers song and yodel. Um, if some young white people came past or young hip city black people, he could sing the latest pop songs. If he was asked to play a dance out in a country juke joint, he could sound like the old blues guys from his part of the country. Um, which meant he could cover all the jobs that came his way. And that was something very admirable in his world. There were plenty of more limited musicians. And that didn't mean they couldn't work. It just meant they couldn't work the range of jobs. But there's something more important than that or more general than that, which is all any musician who was giving a full night's music pretty much anywhere was expected to play a huge variety of music. And that's very hard for us to think of, because now if we want to hear a mix of music, we go to a club with a DJ who can do that just by playing a lot of different records. And when we go hear a band, we know what kind of music they play and expect them to play that kind of music all night. But before they had DJs, when every time you went out to a dance club, it was a live band, the band was expected to play just as complete a mix as a dj would play now they were expected to play all the current hits and that is a big part of of the next book we'll talk about in the next episode how beatles destroyed rock and roll but i want to get back to to robert johnson and and the blues and one point you make is that and this is also fascinating to me and i didn't realize before reading the book that the current recognition of artists from this period almost has an inverse relationship to their popularity with black audiences at the time and you ascribe this to four groups who built the blues cult, one of whom is the record collectors. How did record collectors come to have such an influence on our cultural thinking, our curation? Oh, the, uh, I mean, that's simple. Uh, as of 1960, they were the only people who'd heard any of this stuff. Virtually none of it had been reissued. And if you weren't a collector of old 78s, 
and even more than that, in the clique of lit of collectors who were trading stuff back and forth, you simply had never heard any of this music. There was there was no way you could. It was never played on the radio. It had never been issued on albums. So there was this little world of people who had all of this stuff and traded it with each other on reel-to-reel tapes. And when other people started getting interested, those people started compiling albums of their favorite tracks. And that's what we heard. They were the, So they were the gatekeepers. And they weren't interested in the city piano playing musicians. They weren't interested in P.D. Wheatstraw or even in Leroy Carr. They were people who had come mostly out of the folk scene. And they liked that sort of folky sound. But also they were collectors. And so they were in love with the rarest, hardest to find stuff. And that's one of the reasons Lemon Jefferson didn't get his due in that world. Because musically, he was just the kind of guy they would have liked. But he, his records sold very, very, very well. So everybody had Lemon Jefferson records. And you couldn't impress your friends by having a Lemon Jefferson record. If you had a Skip James record, man, some of those records, only one copy has ever been found. Your friends, you know, worshipped you if you had that record. So that became in itself a value. And then when you add the fact that Skip James records are musically incredible, you know, it's exponential. Some of them are musically incredible, but, you know, a lot of them were really hard to even hear. Um, you know, Devil Got My Woman, there was a pretty good copy and it's an incredible song. But honestly, if all we had were his piano records... I love those records, but I don't think we might ever have heard of Skip James. Huh. That is fascinating. And, wh and where would you put people like John Hammond, who, you know, I would argue has done as much to build. I, I would argue you could include Robert Johnson among Hammond's famous list of people he discovered along with Billy Holiday and Count Basie and Teddy Wilson, et cetera, et cetera. Because and Aretha Franklin and Bruce Springsteen and Bob Dylan and Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yes. Yeah. And, and, one thing that you sort of glide over, though, is that from reading a Hammond biography I just finished, it seems like Hammond is the one who compiled the Columbia King of the Delta Blues singers that introduced Robert Johnson to Bob Dylan and Brian Jones and all these other generational tastemakers. Yes, and immediately followed it up by compiling a Leroy Carr album, which none of those people had any interest in because Leroy Carr wasn't a hot guitar player. Um I mean, John Hammond, the interesting thing in a way about John Hammond is that his taste was terrific, but we only remember the moments when his taste overlapped our taste. And there are all these other things that he was really into that other people weren't that into. I mean, he was as much into Benny Goodman as he was into Count Basie. I'm sure. not and, and and that's why I brought Charlie Christian into the into into the sessions and then to Goodman's band and and Goodman was Hammond's vehicle. I mean Hammond has been credited by some people for integrating uh, jazz music, like letting it be a business practice, so bands could hire a, a white band leader could hire black musicians and vice and he, versa. And he deserves the credit. I yeah. mean he he really had to push Benny Goodman to do that. And and so I mean that's a, a little off track from our topic but i want i want to get back 
to Johnson and one other person that that's a big factor in the Johnson story that doesn't get much credit is H.C. Spear, the furniture store dealer in Jackson, Mississippi. How did he become the gatekeeper to the Delta Blues? Because he was the record store and because he took the trouble. I mean, you know, often there's a lot of chance in these things. There happened to be a record store owner in Jackson, Mississippi, who had figured out that he could sell a lot of records to local black people and some local white people if he had records of the local artists. And a lot of record store owners all over the country thought that way. But he kept pushing the record companies and saying, look, guys, come on. I've got this new guy. If you record him, I can sell these records. And after a while, they found that some of his people also sold other places and they began listening to him and he just kept at it. And really what was special about him is that he kept at it. Yeah. And, and his, his record of discoveries, he's one of the few people that could, I mean, for one genre in one place in time, but his track record is pretty comparable to John Hammond's. I mean, you know, you're looking at quite a chunk of a key American musical genre all brought to us. This stuff would never have been recorded without H.C. Spear. Right. No, no, no. He, in a sense, he invented what we now call Delta Blues simply by being someone saying, hey, they're these local guys. You got to record them. And and if he hadn't done that, we wouldn't have any of them. And I want to go back to Leroy Carr just for a second. Uh, great singer. And you, and you argue in this book that he is probably one of the most influential vocalists in American musical history, and that you can draw a direct line from Leroy Carr to Ray Charles to Sam Cooke to everybody. Why is he so overshadowed? I mean, is it just that he wasn't a guitar player? I mean, and, and you also, you had people in the British blues explosion who were keyboard players. Why weren't people like Alan Price or Rod Argent of the Zombies, you know, why did Leroy Carr not blow their minds? Like, First of all, um, my guess is when you, I mean, you say they were also keyboard players in, in the British blues revival. Who the hell has heard of our, of, of either Alan Price or Rob Argent, except a few serious nerds. I mean, the only keyboard player out of that revival who people have heard of is Elton John, and they don't even know he started out as a blues revivalist. Um, so no keyboard players. There was never any interest in them. That was, a, I mean, they're a handful, Leon Russell, but very, very few. Yeah, but Price so and that's Argent part had of it. massive hits that featured really cool keyboard solos that were, you know, House of the Rising Sun was one of the biggest hits of 1964 yeah. or 65. And, uh, and, you know, the Zombies had number one hits in the U.S. And it's just fascinating to me that, the, that, I mean, what was it about the guitar that became such a fetish item in the 60s? Um, I think partly it's that uh, it's the connection to folk music, which was a very real connection. Um, and it's partly that it's a phallic symbol. Um, you know, you can jump around and wave a guitar like a penis and you can't do that with a piano. And that really, 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 really became a huge part of the mystique of rock and roll. Um, the other thing with Leroy Carr is he sang pretty moody slow blues romantic blues and what white people went to blues for 
in the rock and roll world was scary badass stuff, not slow romantic stuff. They wanted slow romantic stuff. They didn't put on a Rolling Stones album. They wanted slow romantic stuff. They, you know, Roberta Flack or they're all sorts of they were all sorts of pretty singers. Um, that wasn't how they thought of blues. And that is a good segue into our next episode. So we'll wrap this one up here. But one last question about Robert Johnson. What is it that makes Robert Johnson the great blues artist out of all this crew? What to you is, is the reason that Robert Johnson is still the most listened to and talked about of those musicians? Um, I'm first going to say not that many people listen to Robert Johnson. People know his name and they may have the record, but except for blues nuts, not a lot of people listen. Um, for the people who do listen, partly it's that the records are beautifully recorded. The fidelity is excellent. They don't sound like scratchy old 78s. Partly it's that he was a young singer with an exciting voice. And partly it's that he'd listened to all these records. And so he could play all these different styles. So it doesn't just sound like the same thing over and over and over. He can sound like Lonnie Johnson on one song and Sunhouse on the next song. And there's almost nobody of that world who could do both of those things, much less do them at that level. Excellent. And I, I can't argue with that. And looking forward to having you on next week when we'll talk about your book, How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll, which that title always gets a reaction. And I, and I look forward to talking that very much. Thanks for having coming on the show, Elijah. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening. Next week, Elijah Wall returns to discuss how the Beatles destroyed rock and roll. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Escaping the Delta is available from Amistad, an imprint of HarperCollins, and can be found wherever fine books are sold.